Welcome to the ACWS Legal Matters Podcast. Today, I'm here to talk about the Disclosure to Protect Against Domestic Violence Act, and that is more commonly known as Claire's Law. With me today, I have two guests uh, joining me, Lisa Watson and Jeanette McGinnis, and we're going to have a discussion from a number of points of view, um, both from frontline shelter workers and from the Friendship Center's viewpoint, as well as my viewpoint as a family law lawyer. I'd like to introduce Jeanette McInnes. She's currently the Women and Wellness Manager at Alberta Native Friendship Centers Association, and she is the former Director of Health and Ending Violence Initiatives at the BC Association of Aboriginal Friendship Centers. Jeanette has an extensive background in a multitude of social determinants of health and wellness areas, including poverty. She's been a strong advocate for the health and well-being of women with an expansive academic and professional background on the issue extending as far afield as the plight of women in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We also have with us today Lisa Watson, the Executive Director of Odyssey House in Grand Prairie. She's a leader, a mother, a wife, a friend, a problem solver, and a relationship builder. She has community first priorities. She's an anti-violence agenda pusher. She's an equity pursuer and evaluation supporter. She's a faithful advocate for social justice. She was raised in Alberta, but educated in Saskatchewan. She's a rural girl thriving in an urban world. She's a believer that housing is a human right and that everyone deserves to be safe in their home and community. Thank you both for joining me. The first thing I want to talk about is Claire's Law has been in force in Alberta for about um, a year, just a, a year and a month. And has basically two parts to it. The right to ask, which is where the person who's at risk of being um, hurt by domestic violence has the right to make inquiries and the right to know, which places a bit of an obligation on police to inform people who might be at risk. I'm wondering what your experience has been with Claire's Law since it was implemented. So perhaps we could start with Lisa. Thank you, Jessica. Um, just to talk about a little bit around our experience. Um, so I was invited to be a part of the Claire's Law Working Group um, as a community member to help develop uh, the law in general. Um, so I sat with a few other individuals to give feedback on what would work, some safety measures that might be need to put in place, um, and things that might work for those individuals experiencing uh, violence. Um, and as far as Odyssey House goes, we've had about five individuals that we've either supported directly with their application or they have applied for the application independently. Um, and then we've kind of helped them through the process with that. Uh, we've also had, I believe, three referrals from um, that identifying marker on the application uh, with individuals that are looking for supports and services after they've applied for Claire's Law. So um, those three individuals have been connected to us for supports, uh, which has been a really good connection for us because these were individuals that had not accessed our services in the past um, and were interested in looking for those supports too. So um, we've yeah, had an experience with about eight individuals over the last year uh, that have accessed our services and wouldn't have accessed our services previously um, with Claire's Law without having Claire's Law in place. So Jeanette, I'd like to know what your experience with Claire's Law is. Thanks, Jessica. Um, I also sat on the government's advisory committee on Claire's Law um, to provide an Indigenous lens to the development of the application 
and the way the law would roll out. Um, at first, when the, we first started to develop this, uh, talking to our 21 centres, there was a lot of concern with our centres of having a whole bunch of Indigenous women coming in and wanting to have support in filling out the online application. And there have been a few in some of our centres, but there hasn't been this great influx of Indigenous women coming in to apply. And... Um, I feel, and I kind of knew that that would be kind of the outcome. We had really pushed to have um, self-identity on the application. So you could self-identify as being First Nations, Métis, or Inuit. Um, and it, it's both because both we wanted to see the statistics of Indigenous women applying. But on the other hand, I knew it would be hard and I, because of, you know, long-term systemic racism, a lot of Indigenous women wouldn't check that box. So they wouldn't self-identify that they were Indigenous because they would feel that they would have a different outcome if they did. So when the statistics came out in January, and I believe it's like 372 applications have come in since the law was applied, um, they didn't actually show if any Indigenous women had applied, which they were supposed to be capturing that statistic, but they haven't reported on it to anybody that I'm aware of that was on that advisory committee. So that would be really important to know what is the hinder. Are, are Indigenous women applying and not checking that box because of fear of racism and discrimination and not getting the help that they need? Or are Indigenous women just not applying because of all of the other reasons? You know, you have to deal with the police. The disclosure is at the police um, station. Um, there's no safety for an applicant when, when she applies. If she has any outstanding warrants or anything, she can be arrested or have a, you know, an investigation against herself. So my experience so far is I don't know how it's working for Indigenous women. And um, I really feel that there's still barriers that uh, are in place just in society uh, in regards to discrimination that are stopping Indigenous women to apply. That was one of my concerns, too, when I uh, was looking at the law at first, was how were people going to access it and how safe would it be for them? Um, I work in the area of child welfare, which has a large overrepresentation of Indigenous people in it. And I guess one of my concerns was, too, is that um, domestic violence is often used as a reason to apprehend children. And so it wouldn't be just the woman who was at risk by going into the police station to receive disclosure, but potentially could be result in children being apprehended. So you've spoken to some of the barriers. Um, I... Um, I just want to hear from each of you, and I think we'll start with you, Jeanette, just to, you've mentioned some barriers, but are there any other barriers that you want to speak about in terms of either for Indigenous women or other marginalized groups of people like women of colour or, um, like, there's so many marginalized groups, like the way people identify their gender or possibly women with disabilities. Um, I'm interested to hear from both of you on that, but we'll start with you, Jeanette. Um from the Indigenous side and also for newcomers, women that are newcomers, and I, I can't really speak to them because I don't work for a newcomer organization, but um, in the women that I know that are newcomers, I've heard their concerns in other meetings. And part of it is, for me, for Indigenous women, they want supports that are Indigenous-led, and very few supports are out there that are funded that are Indigenous-led. 
And so they are forced to seek services from non-Indigenous service providers. And it's not equal across the province, but for a lot of communities, Indigenous women have not had a good relationship with those non-Indigenous service providers and have fear or distrust of them. Um, however, there's no investment in um, Indigenous organizations, not just friendship centers, but Indigenous organizations as a whole, in helping support Indigenous women um, fleeing, or not really fleeing violence, because that's really where the shelters, you know, are there for, but in the in the kind of healing process and the support process of getting back on your feet, there there is very little out there to help Indigenous women from an Indigenous and culturally you know, relevant lens and same for newcomer women. I mean, they have extra challenges with language barriers and um, fear of their own community's retaliation for, for, you know, applying for Claire's Law. So those would be my biggest things. The other thing is one of the hindrances, and maybe this isn't the right place to talk about it, is the government, both federally and provincially, kind of invests money in the downstream lens. So you're already getting into intervention and you're already getting in, into emergency action. And to really address intimate partner violence, it has to start way upstream in the prevention end. And, and I think that there needs to be a lot more money in the prevention end, as well as programming for men. Um, um, Non-Indigenous men and Indigenous men need not mandated programs. Mandated programs are one thing, but they need programs that help support their health and well-being. Um, that they have peer accountability, like accountability with a group of men that they meet with all the time. And I think that to really address intimate partner violence, those are like some of the challenges and barriers that aren't really well funded anywhere. So. I had a follow-up question because Lisa had mentioned earlier that um, there were some referrals that they that Odyssey House um, received through the Claire's Law process, and I was just wondering if you were aware of any referrals for supports um, where people making applications under Claire's Law had been directed to the friendship centers at all. So, to my knowledge, uh, there haven't been. Um, we do have a couple of centers that have registered to be a support service with CIGIS, which is the organization that is supposed to provide those referrals. Um, however, there's just not enough programs out there that are funded for every friendship center to have that intense type of programming that a woman can come. Um, so it's really about collaboration with agencies such as Lisa's, right? So um, the Grand Prairie Friendship Center has a long-standing relationship with Lisa and her organization. So that is where, you know, if someone is referred to the Friendship Center, the executive director of the staff of the Friendship Center would probably reach out to Lisa's staff and, and help get those, you know, supports in place. Thank you. So, Lisa, just going back to the original question about barriers um, for different groups of people, including newcomers, Indigenous women, women of color, and and I'm not trying to limit our discussion here. What kinds of things have you seen or do you worry about in terms of Claire's Law when it comes to barriers? I think all the things that Jeanette had identified as well are things that I think rest, rest in the back of our brain when we're talking about supports through Claire's Law, um, the access, and just even part of the application is that they need to go into the RCMP detachment um, 
and to be able to receive the results because they aren't put down on paper or shared that way. Um, with the application itself, what it gives is like a low, medium, or high result. So uh, that's given verbally. Uh, so there are some barriers associated with that, whether it be transportation into your closest RCMP detachment. It also talks about your relationship with the RCMP as well. So maybe in some of our smaller rural communities, um, they might there might be some history around that uh, between them or their family members as well. So there is absolutely some concerns about how they're accessing the information once they receive it. I think another part too that we can identify is that um, really what the report gives back is if they have some sort of a criminal background related to domestic violence or a breach of um, a no contact order or whatnot, what it doesn't include is something like course of control. So someone might be experiencing violence on a level, but it hasn't been recognized within our justice system because um, things like course of control aren't recognized as a criminal offense. So I think some of that might be where Someone could come back with a low risk, but it's really just about whether or not they've been documented within our criminal system. So if they haven't been documented, it might give a little bit of a illusion to those individuals if they haven't had a good prepping before they receive these results um, to say, well, nothing came up through the criminal. It doesn't mean that there isn't some sort of history around abuse, too. Um, we have seen some individuals receive their results and it's actually helped to make their decision around whether or not they stay with that partner. So I'm not too sure at this point if that's the exception or the norm, um, but there are those kind of benefits. So those are, one would be yes, the disclosure doesn't provide a full picture of who that individual is. It just really provides a picture of their interactions with our justice system and our RCMP. So, um, I think that could possibly be confusing as well. And then, yes, those individuals um, that are identifying as Indigenous and those women that might have a history too, I, I emphasize that as well, is that it might be difficult for them to access some of those results or services um, as well. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think, I think, that I think it's that really easy really for, especially for, especially for like for a white, white woman, woman like, like me, me to, to underestimate, underestimate how... how Traumatic, traumatic dealing with the justice, with the justice system and police can be. You know, I've seen people just from the idea of going to a courthouse and I'm like, you know, there's not even necessarily police there, but going to a courthouse where there are lots of well-meaning people who want to help people, the level of anxiety and um, fear that many of my clients have, um, I just didn't understand that that would be there until I saw it happening right in front of me. And so I think that if anything, going into a police station could potentially be far more traumatic for many people. And they're, you know, I, I can't, I just am having a hard time imagining what it would be like for that woman who has a fear of police, like totally justified to go into a police station by herself to, to talk about these issues, you know, and even talking about the reasons why they're making the application could be um, reintroducing the trauma to them. So, it's a really tough situation. And I mean, I can sit back and criticize um, from my armchair because I don't, I'm not the one being asked to come up with the solution. But um, I guess I kind of see Claire's Law as one tool in a, in a toolkit. It's, it's, I think it's useful for sure. Um, but my next question for you is, if Claire's Law is one tool in a toolkit, what are some of the other tools? And we've heard a little bit about that, but I'd invite you to expand on it. So Lisa, I'll get you to go first this time. 
I think, you know, expecting that one law is going to be the be all end all solve all for everyone is not realistic. Um, I think, again, our women's shelters are a really big support for those individuals and really identifying um, what violence looks like. I, I know one of the things we're seeing and have seen in the past is that uh, coming in and completing something like a danger assessment has been really helpful for individuals. So, um, and then that helps to develop a safety plan. Sometimes, um, individuals that are accessing our services are only recognizing violence as a physical form. So things like financial and isolation and um, verbal abuse are not something that they recognize is an actual form of violence until they sit down and do a danger assessment or a complete assessment with us. And it starts to kind of bring this like idea or this light of, of realizing what abuse can be. So I think one, Claire's Law serves as like that way and access point, but our community services and not only our women's shelters, but places like our friendship centers that uh, support that diversity and that cultural connection are, are really those pieces. And then I also go back to just families and friends, family and friends and awareness. Um, and really knowing that if someone does reach out to you or if you're recognizing something that you feel is a form of violence, having those active conversations are another really great tool through those informal supports that help women uh, be able to ask for help. It helps um, men to be able to ask for help if they are maybe showing some violent tendencies. So I really feel like when we talk about tools in the toolbox, it's really about the toolbox than it is about the tools because that toolbox really represents our community. So it's these little pieces from our community, whether they're, you know, supported through these formal supports like our agencies, but it's about people having awareness and that public education and that piece of prevention that Jeanette had talked about. Like sometimes it just doesn't make sense in my brain that we need to have a law like this because we're still experiencing violence after and trying to support through it after 40 years of supporting women's shelters. So a bit of a rant there, Jessica, but when we talk about tools and toolboxes, it, it is about the toolbox itself. So yeah, I hear what you're saying. And, and Jeanette, you, you did talk a little bit about prevention and some of the things you could see there. I was wondering if you could expand on that and, and what kinds of things you see that need funding as well as any other tools that you wanted to talk about. Um, so I, I absolutely agree with, with, with what Lisa said and what a beautiful analogy that that toolbox is a community. And I agree. Um, I truly believe that the only way that we're going to address uh, intimate partner violence, family violence or domestic violence is through this lens of societal cooperation, which means there's got to be a lot of change from everybody in every community and not let it be acceptable. Um, you know, like I said, I, I'm a true believer in prevention. And the reason why it's not funded the way that intervention programs are is because it doesn't tell the same story. You can't give the government, oh, well, we help this many women escape violence and we help this many do this because prevention, the whole point of prevention is not to have those numbers at the end. So then people don't, government doesn't want to fund that because what are they going to report on, right? Like they can't brag that they you know, through their funding, they, they, they funded 500 women to access shelters or, you know, flee violence or, and so that is like a, one of the biggest downfalls. If we want to see a change in 20 years, we got to be teaching our young people, um, you know, about healthy relationships and what they are. And from an indigenous, and, and that's for all children, 
regardless of their ethnicity. But from an indigenous point of view, those cultural, historical cultural teachings on, you know, your role in the community and healthy relationships, we have seen them implemented in other programs that are not funded specifically to address domestic violence. But, um, you know, they're very impactful for you that help them navigate the world and, um, you know, seek help when they feel stressed and, and uh, address anger right? How to help healthily, like in a healthy way, address anger. I mean, everybody has anger. That's just the human nature. But, you know, most people don't react by hitting someone else. So if, if we could address anger and, and how to appropriately deal with it at a younger age, we could really address the, uh, the numbers of domestic violence victims and intimate partner victims in the future. So, and that's, a full toolbox in itself. That's a whole different toolbox. Um, like I said, I am a big believer in supporting men and we hear it from our friendship center communities and our elders and men within the friendship center movement that men's programming needs to be funded. And I believe that's men wherever, um, non-Indigenous men and Indigenous men. Um, we know their mental health outcomes right now are, are atrocious and there's hardly any supports that are specific to men in which men feel safe accessing. And so, you know, kind of those peer groups where it's not sitting around in a circle talking about, you know, you did this and how dare you and you shouldn't hit your, your spouse anymore, or your partner anymore, but more about having peers support one another and, and talk about how they have a healthy relationship with, with their partners and hold each other accountable. And, and that's really kind of a voluntary program and, and helping men with their mental health. You know, the pandemic has been atrocious on mental health across the world. Um, and we're really seeing the outcomes now. And we know that it's exasperated intimate partner violence. Like we, we know it has. Um, just the numbers that the RCMP were reporting early on in 2020, um, just in how much intimate partner incidents had a risen. And, and again, from an Indigenous point of view, most Indigenous people don't report to the police when they experience domestic violence. But um, I really think that, you know, from an intervention lens and an early intervention lens and a prevention lens is going to be those tools that need to be um, more readily available in every community. Yeah, I've, you've. There's a lot to unpack in what you just said, for sure. And um, I, I know what you mean about sort of peer support groups that are more voluntary and not, you know, sitting people down in a circle and telling them how bad they are. I don't think anything really good can ever come from forcing shame on somebody. It's it's not going to make them want to be a better person necessarily. So I I think that's a really interesting point. I just was struggling as you were talking to think of a way to, to make that, that happen. It's maybe it's a product of the toolbox that we're living in, in terms of what our society is like, but people are a little bit reluctant to reach out for that kind of help. And I think part of it has to do with, you know, we, 
whenever we disagree with a behavior, we want to criminalize it right away. And, and criminalizing behaviors can be useful. Um, like, for instance, like what Lisa was talking about, you know, one of the problems with Claire's Law is that it only reflects criminal behavior. And right now, course of control isn't really treated as a criminal offense at all. Um, so... It, it's problematic in that regard, but at the same time, when we criminalize something, I think it, in a way, it almost decreases our chances of solving the problem because it, it will make things, people will be more ready to hide those things at the same time and not reach out for help. Um, and, and now I feel like I've created a paradox that I can't get out of <laughs> because by t trying to talk through it. Um, but it definitely it's, it's a very difficult problem. And I'm glad that there are smart people like the two of you on the front lines dealing with it. Do you think that disclosure laws like Claire's Law have the danger of maybe creating a, a false sense of security for someone who gets goes and gets um, a report back where there's no indication of a violence. Um, we had talked before how like domestic violence is very underreported in the Indigenous community, but not just there. I think it's fair to say it's underreported in most communities. Um, so do you think that there is a danger that that there will be women feeling secure in the knowledge that there's no criminal history. Um, who would like to go first on this one? Lisa, do you want to go? I think it's always hard to put myself into someone's shoes that's experiencing this for sure. Um, could it possibly create that, that sense of safety if it's not documented? And yes, absolutely. I think that's more of the reason why a little bit more training and awareness needs to be uh, reiterated with this um, initiative itself, uh, just so that women are prepared that and know that just because it shows up as a low risk or a no risk, that that just means that they aren't within the system and they haven't had a history that's been documented through our justice system and through the RCMP. So really sharing that information, which I mean, can be a little disheartening as well because they've taken approximately a half an hour to fill out the application with a bit of an expectation. But again, it's about how do you connect? And I think that's why it was, we inserted the um, ability to connect with resources as well. So that individual can, I, identify that they might need a little bit more support as well. So, um, yeah, I think that can definitely be a barrier. Jeanette? So, um, I don't usually like to talk about my personal experience anymore. I did it for so many years and, you know, I lived in BC for a long time. I think everybody in British Columbia heard me speak at some point. So as someone who has experienced extreme intimate partner violence, when I was younger, I'm older and smarter now, but when I was younger, I really think about if I would have applied for this law. And when I sat on the advisory committee, I really came through it, approached it from that point of view. When I was who I was back then, would I have used it? And I don't know, you know, when you're first starting out and really Claire's law is for those that, you know, they're not in a long term relationship with this person. This is, you know, the beginning and when you're starting to see something, um, particularly for a certain age group, you want to believe the best and it's a one time thing and it's not going to happen again. And what I feel is no woman is going to apply for it if everything's going good in her relationship. Right. 
no, and and they wouldn't even get approved for a disclosure if everything's going good. There, you actually have to cite a reason about why you're applying. You you can't do it for your own safety. Um, you, you actually something has already had to have happened for you to apply and for that application to be accepted. And um, so that in itself, if you're applying, if a woman is applying, something has happened. Something has happened that scared her or something has happened that terrified her. Um, and I think if back in the day when the first incident that was quite serious in my relationship um, happened, it would not have been what I would have. I, I would like to think I would have been smart enough that had it been accessible, that I would have went and I would have learned. But as we were talking about, as violent as my ex-partner was, he was never, ever charged for anything like that. So, I mean, we were young, too. So um, so it wouldn't it would have created a self, uh, you know, uh, a sense of security that actually wasn't there because there were no charges laid against him. And I'm quite certain that in a previous relationship he had before me, I'm quite certain there was violence in that. Um, my partner got worse as we got longer into our relationship for a multitude of reasons of his own making with addiction and everything else. And that's really when things went sideways for us. But for those that are just starting off in a relationship, you're not going to apply because you have no reason to. And and then if you do, if something happens, because it's got to be something has happened that made you fearful, um, which to me is kind of a little late, like something's already happened. Um, I just don't, I think it will because it'll, oh, there's nothing to disclose to you. So then you go on believing that this person is a good person. And, and we know the games that, people that have been abused play in their minds that, oh, I'm making it more of a big deal than I thought. And, oh, I'm, you know, you know, clearly I'm just, you know, this can't be true. And I'm, I'm overthinking this and he didn't really mean to do that, or he didn't really mean to say that. So you will automatically talk yourself out of it. And if the police are telling you, oh, there's nothing to disclose. Um, I do think it creates a false sense of security for sure. Yeah, I had thought a lot about this and and sort of the the timing and what would be the most useful time in a relationship to get this done. And I thought, you know, well, as soon as you meet someone, but then the law doesn't permit you to do that, right? Almost like a background check because, you know, criminal um, proceedings are a matter of public record, but where do you get that public record from? Like, I don't know anybody who can easily... Well, maybe some crown prosecutors and some defense lawyers who can maybe access um, these public records. But even in, if you're just looking for someone who's lived in Alberta their whole lives, you, you would usually have to do a search for criminal um, offenses um, jurisdiction by jurisdiction, like courthouse by courthouse. There's no easy way. I can't just walk into an RCMP station and ask for a criminal record check on someone without their their consent. Um, but supposedly, this is all a matter of criminal record. And I mean, that doesn't even get into the problems you run into if someone who has a lengthy criminal record for domestic violence decides to change their name and operate under a new name, then how are you going to be able to check into them? So, you know, I, I do see a bit of a problem with this whole 
something already has to have happened in order for you to get this information. I, I feel like it should be um, available more up front. But I, I know why it was done that way. Obviously, um, there's not enough resources to run background checks for everyone who's who's dating people and they wouldn't be able to handle the volume of that. Um, cause I do think that if women could make those checks at the very beginning of a relationship, there'd be a lot of women who did take advantage of that. Um, maybe not as well, maybe I'm just saying that because now I'm older and wiser as well. I mean, when I was 20, I probably, <laughs> I don't think I would have been that smart about it, but now that I'm older, um, I think about these things a lot more, and especially when I'm, I'm watching younger people. Did either of you have anything that you want to add about the timing of things on that? I know, Lisa, um, you haven't really spoken about that. Do you have anything you wanted to say? I, I don't have much more to add. I completely agree with, with both of you, for sure. Um, I, I just think about, again, you put in your personal experience with it, too, and new relationships are exciting, and, and you seem to kind of overlook some of those little red flags that start to pop up in the beginning of a relationship. So I think even in the beginning, you know, in that relationship where there might be some small signs of abuse or uh, big abuse too, that I think even people in relationships might overlook that even. So I don't know if, if accessing Claire's law with that response would be the best in like an early relationship, because that is a time where it's, it's very um, new and, and, often people are overlooking that piece. But um, I do like the option with the third party uh, being able to access as well, um, especially with young women that are first starting dating um, that might not have a dating experience um, and are really into the person that they're with, that having that consent and, and also having another voice that's able to help support them through that application, I think is a nice option as well, for sure. Yes, that option yes, is that a little option bit limited in that you either have to have consent or be the parent of someone who's under the age of 18. You can do that without their consent. And anyone who is appointed as a decision maker basically by court order can also do those those checks. So I think I think those are good limits. It, it, I mean, it is a bit limited, but I think those are reasonable limits. Um, I mean, I, I think about the extent to which I'd want my mother interfering in my life now. And I'm glad that she'd have to have my consent to, uh, to do that. Um, I guess what you're saying too, about, you know, when understanding how relationships work and how exciting they are at the beginning and, and how, um, lots of things can get overlooked because the, 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 the feelings are so good and um, it's exciting. That really goes back to the need to really educate young people starting at, I would say, a very early age about healthy relationships, like what both of you were speaking about earlier. And I just am wondering how you each see that working. Like, what is this something that has to be done through the schools? Is it something that needs to be done by, I mean, I don't think we can necessarily rely on parents to teach about healthy relationships. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Lisa, why don't you go first? I think with our public education department, um, I'm all for inclusive programming. So offering programming where you expect individuals 
that need the supports or might need your, your target audience when you're sending out a call out, well, we're going to have this group. Quite often, they're not accessing for a lot of the same reasons that we've identified here, whether it be transportation or no information or just not able to get to us. Um, I think schools is a great place to start and starting early in schools. So early conversations, whether that be uh, grade one or even in childcare facilities too, around like trauma-informed practice, um, that early intervention and that primary intervention is a big one. So quite often the conversations we're having is what is primary prevention? Primary prevention um, can look differently, but it's things like what are our poverty reduction strategies that we have in our community that would maybe help to support a woman to leave a home or to support a man to leave a home? Because um, that's one of the biggest barriers quite often with leaving relationships is what am I going to do financially because I'm so dependent here? It's his home. It's her home. I can't leave. Um, so having those early primary prevention strategies around supports for affordable childcare, for uh, poverty reduction strategies around income, um, having all those right supports in place, uh, those strategies are crucial to ending uh, the cycle of violence and that intergenerational violence. So I'm all for inclusive programming, uh, which is that secondary and tertiary programming where we're bringing that public awareness, letting people know about healthy relationships, engaging men and boys in conversations around what violence looks like, what consent looks like, um, and how to treat individuals on a level of kindness and um, on a level of an appropriate human, I guess, um, conversation too. So you can go with the structured programming with these prevention levels, but then there's also an expectation in our communities too. And I've had these conversations with um, a few men who are, are involved in things like coaching. Um, and one of those examples was standing on the sidelines one day and hear some derogatory terms that are being used just on the field and having a side conversation with that coach to say, hey, like, I know this is ingrained in you. I know this is how you've practiced for a really long time, but that language is actually super derogatory to women and it ends up like trickling down into your students and how they interact in their relationships because now the derogatory language that you're using has now put this label on this young woman or young man um, that supports that intimate partner violence or those labeling that we do. So it can be these formal structures where we're doing publication education events and healthy relationship um programming, but it's also in like our everyday language and even having those gentle conversations with individuals when something's not quite sitting right with you. So I, I love how you put, that, how gentle you put that gentle conversation. conversation. I mean, that's not a strength of mine. I'm more of like the in your face conversation, <laughs> but I think it's a skill we can all work on. And, you know, there's power for great change there. Um, Jeanette, did you want to speak to that one? Um, you're right. I, you know, teaching people to respond when they hear their friends, um, uh, is, it would be, and that again has to start at a young age. And I, you know, I actually had a discussion recently with someone about, okay, well, if your friend is talking this way, are you going to call them out on it? Um, and it's really like, okay, well, they've been my friend for 20 years. I don't, that's just how they are. But if they did this, I would probably say something to them, right? So it's like people are also choosing, well, 
they can't be a bad person because I've known them for 20 years and I don't know them to be that way. But it's different when they're with a partner, right? The intimate partner relationships are different than friendships. And I think um, particularly for men, um, they don't like to call one another out on because, oh, you're a wussy. You know, like there's language that they use when someone actually doesn't tolerate that kind of language or, or that kind of comments that are made. And so then they're kind of frowned upon uh, as well. So um, I actually do think it's very challenging for men to change their behavior when um, it's supported in society to be a certain way. And, you know, I do agree that a public school system is a great place to start. Um, but I think in every youth activity, there is a place to teach about healthy relationships and healthy roles in, in the community. And um, our centers do it with all of their youth programming. They may not be intensive about healthy relationships, but I do believe that they place a lot of relation or a lot of teachings on cultural traditions of your roles and responsibilities in an indigenous community. And, um, you know, so I do believe that there is a place in the public school system. I don't think it'll work for everybody in the public school system. Um, but it, it definitely be, should be something that is built in naturally to um, course curriculum for sure. Thank you. Um, this is kind of a big question that I have. I'm wondering what you think about the education that police are getting on domestic violence and what you know about the education they might be getting on Claire's Law and wondering what you think about that and if you see any gaps in it. Um, and since both of you were on the on the committee that developed the present form of the law, I'm interested to hear if um, this was a source of uh, discussion or planning at that level, too. So, um, Jeanette, would you like to start? Oh, what a big question. So, I'll be the bad guy. So, the first thing I said in the advisory committee when we were talking about the police is, um, what if the police officer is the person in the small community that their partner wants to make the application. And, and basically the comment back to me, oh, well, it would be handled, you know, internally through so-and-so and so. But what if one of their buddies on the police force tells them that their partner has filed an application? Um, that was one of my biggest concerns that actually was never really addressed in a good way. And, and I'm not putting down police officers by any means, but I do happen to know a few that have been actually abusive to their partners in my life's lifetime. So um, there was that. Um, and, and then there is kind of that uh, discrimination lens um, and because Indigenous people often experience discrimination from police in their communities. Um, so where is the safety around that if, that if if that police officer is racist or discriminatory and is the one that the application is going to go to. So I, those have always been my concerns. I don't think there's enough uh, training on both cultural safety and domestic and intimate partner violence um, across the board in the justice system. And going a little off track, just to give you an example of that is when a young indigenous woman was murdered and the, mur and the accused went to court, uh, 
the fact that the uh, defendant's lawyer was allowed to use her ethnicity in a negative way throughout the whole trial. And, and you would never get away with that by using any other person's ethnicity, except for someone that was indigenous or native as the term that they use. Um, and the judge allowed it to go on like that because I'm quite certain had it been anybody else's ethnicity and they were constantly using it as a derogatory term, that that would not go over in the courtroom. So I think there needs to be training across the board about, about domestic violence, intimate partner violence, sexual assault, and that cultural safety, non-discriminatory lens. You know, as someone who is actively engaged in the justice system, as a lawyer, I can tell you for sure lawyers need more training on all of those things. And there are attempts being made, but there's also, you hear people being resistant to it. And that is, I mean, that proves the reason, that proves the point of why this training is needed in the first place, but they don't, they don't see it that way. And um, yeah, I mean, lawyers become judges. So if we can't get to training judges, then we should start with the lawyers, I guess it would be my suggestion. Lisa, what are your thoughts on, on the training piece specifically for police, but, but anyone else as well? In these areas, I don't think there's any limit to the training that people need or should have. Um, again, the experience changes over and over and over again. I do know some of the limitations um, with RCMP and new members. One is is turnover rates um, in Grand Prairie. I think that's something that we, we do experience quite a bit um, with individuals leaving and new members coming in. Um, and we've actually entered into a memorandum of understanding with our local uh, detachment here that, that tells us how we should be working together um, and clearly defines what that looks like. But I do know talking to some members, not only around Claire's Law, but uh, training in general is a difficult one for them. And there's not a whole lot of budget there to be able to support it too. So um, I think there's some systemic things going on that might need to be addressed. Um, I think the eager eagerness to learn and the willing to learn is there. Um, I just don't know if there's enough things available to our RCMP as well. We have a great um, special investigations unit here too um, that has really taken the time to do training around trauma-informed practice um, and response um, and the cultural piece as well to respond to our demographic that's here. Uh, but again, this is an area that I don't think you can ever have enough training and learning in. Well, and it's an area, too, I think that our understanding of is evolving over time. I think, um, well, I guess that's maybe easy for me to say because I I went to law school, you know, I never took a course about being trauma-informed or any type of really skills-based course in terms of how you deal with people or or what these things might look like. And so since I've started in my new position, I... I I practice in private law for a while now. I'm in, in. I basically practice poverty law. I work at, at Legal Aid Alberta, and um, that's where I started to get training on these issues. So that's been, you know, out of a 20-year career, the last five years. So I think maybe things are improving in law schools and that sort of thing now, but there certainly isn't a lot to start off with. So maybe I just mean that my understanding is deepening as opposed to like society's understanding of domestic violence. Um, that sort of brings me to the end of my list of questions. I did, however, want to give each of you a chance. Um, I didn't 
want to constrain you on this topic by making you stick within the question. So I'll start with Lisa and just ask if you have anything else that you want people to know or that you want to say about Claire's Law and then the same thing to Jeanette. Awesome. Um, again, I, I just want to reiterate that Claire's Law is meant to be a tool. Uh, we're within our first year um, of exploring it. And I know there has been a over 400 applications, I believe, in the first 10 months of the, of the program. Um, in response to when Saskatchewan implemented their Claire's Law, I believe they had about 21 applications in 18 months. So I don't think that the coordination of this anyone was really expecting that much of a response. Um, and again, I still feel like there's room for improvement. Um, I don't want to discourage anyone from applying uh, and finding out. But again, accessing those resources to help either support individuals through it or to help them decipher through the results and whether or not they want to stay in their relationships. Um, there are so many resources that are available, uh, Women's Shelter being one of them. Again, our Grand Prairie Friendship Centers and our cultural really supportive agencies. Uh, there's there's a lot of places where there are support, and I just hope that individuals are reaching out as well. Um, I don't know. Again, it's it's Claire's Law is just is, is another tool, and it's I think it's conversations like these. I think it's feedback from the individuals that are accessing the program, uh, our RCMP members and our agencies giving feedback on what's working and what's not. And I think there's a platform to be able to uh, enhance the service if we need to, uh, change it if we need to. It's just going to be a bit of a process. But for now, um, I believe it's somewhat serving the process that it needs, even if it's one individual that decides to not stay in their abusive relationship. So, yeah. Thanks, Lisa. Jeanette? Um, I agree with Lisa. You know, if the law helps save one woman's life, it, it's definitely worth it. Like, it, it is worth it. Um, what I hope to see out of Claire's Law is it takes a while for people to know, understand, and, and use a new, new tool like this. Um, but what we had talked about early on in the advisory group is that the statistics that they get from the applicants and also from SAGES, which is the, the, re, the, the people who provide the referrals to those who apply through Claire's Law, um, to see where there's holes in the system, to see where there's holes for supports, um, what's missing, because every community is different. They're not all made the same and you know we have some very small communities out there with very high rates of intimate partner violence um, and very few supports in them and so I hope that the government takes like a really good analysis of of the statistics that they have already received over the last year and really see where there's greater need for more resources and programs um, and and do everything they can to support it well, thank you so much. I just want to thank you both for joining me today. I've learned so much. It's been a real pleasure to meet you here in this podcast for the first time and have a chance to speak to each of you. I also want to thank you for, for giving your time to ACWS um, and allowing us to do this podcast. Um, I know that both of you have a lot going on, and I just really appreciate you coming and sharing so generously with us today. So thanks again. Thanks again.